thank you everybody for coming. Um, it's lovely to see so many of you people here. I was having a discussion with a colleague at Morning Tea and um, he said, oh, the weather might, weather might mean that fewer people arrive, you know, because townies are pretty soft, aren't they? And um, <laughs> so <laughs> you townies are obviously made of sterner stuff. So it, it, is, it is really lovely that um, you've been able to come here at lunchtime today. So I am honoured to be the first speaker to this new seminar series, um, as Neil was alluding to, um, and um, also with, with Joan. I, I certainly couldn't have written the book without National Library um, sources. Um, it's full of them. And the MCH support was invaluable, um, particularly at the beginning of the project. Um, it was suggested to me that rather than speak about a topic in the book, um, that I proffer some reflections on the researching and writing of it. So I'm going to examine five um, areas. Um, firstly, why I wrote the book. Um, secondly, how I went about it. The project's challenges and rewards. Fourthly, some of the book's main findings. And finally, how the book might shape future research. Now, um, I've taken it for granted that this audience in particular will have some familiarity with New Zealand history and historiography. But if I mention anything that's unclear, then please pipe up and let me know and I'll endeavour to um, explain it. And if I can't explain it, there's lots of other historians in this audience that probably can. Okay, so why did I write the book? Well, as somebody who's fascinated by urban society and culture, I was frustrated at the lack of urban history writing in New Zealand. Although urban history is a thriving sub-discipline overseas, it's never really taken off in New Zealand. There have been periodic bursts of inquiry, um, notably the University of Otago's detailed study of southern Dunedin between 1880 and 1840, um, known as the Cavisham Project um, over here, um, and that produced a number of um, very stimulating studies, including ones by Eric Olson and others by Barbara Brooks um, and others. Um, but this activity hasn't really generated a sustained interest in New Zealand's past. I've long found this perplexing. It seems strange to me that in a nation where most New Zealanders have lived in towns and cities for generations, at least since 1911, history writing has largely focused on telling stories of those who lived on the land or in the countryside. I put this down to prevalence in New Zealand culture of the rural myth. This is the idea that Pākehā or settlers came to New Zealand primarily to become farmers or farmhands, and the role of towns was to support the same as rural service centres. Within this paradigm, the big settler or Pākehā colonial story is the alienation of Māori land and the creation of a settled landscape. Towns and cities, if mentioned at all, um, <coughs> in these narratives are peripheral actors. So the big story, as you can see here, is... Um, the idea of coming into land, clearing a forest, um, establishing a farmhouse, um, having your family, and um, yeah, taming the land and farming. Well, the idea, the idea that urban New Zealand had an instant, incidental role in the colony's development didn't ring true for me when I was learning about it in the university in the 1980s, and felt even less true when I looked into my own family's history. I began The Big Smoke by relating the story, basically from the arrival of my great-great-grandfather James Schrader in Dunedin in 1862, all my ancestors or direct ancestors have lived and worked in towns and cities. Their history has been an urban history. As I wrote in the book, 
My own ties to the land are weak, as are my historical links to it. There is no grand homestead, rustic dairy cottage, or even ruined miner's hut that I can return to and say, that's where my fair boys, fair bears, forebears, sorry, work the soil. Okay, so I mean, I just, that, that idea that um, there's, you know, Parker, or particularly may I have that strong connection to the land, but I, I didn't. What I did have a connection to was urban occupations, and this was um, my great-grandfather's and grandmother's um, tea rooms in um, Upper Stafford Street in Timaru in the 1920s, and there, there, behind the counters there. And there's a quite nice link in my family because my younger brother Paul um, runs Nico Cafe in Wellington, so there's a sort of a family link. Well, in short, I felt my family story and those of other townspeople had not been given due consideration in New Zealand's historiography. I therefore wanted to challenge the rural-centric reading of colonial Pākehā society by providing a parallel narrative that focused on city life. So how do I go about it? <clears throat> Well, I spent ages refining the scope and structure of the book. I knew it would be a Herculean task to relate an urban history of New Zealand, and so one that examined both towns and cities. So I decided to exclude towns and focus on the five colonial cities, and these are Auckland, Wellington, Nelson, Christchurch, and Dunedin. Um, I included Nelson because it was declared city by letters patent in 1858. So by letters patent, it meant that if it was a seat of a bishop, um, you could um, proclaim it a city through this particular device. But Nelson actually drops out of the narrative in the second half of the book because of its relative decline against the other four cities. Um, it really developed as a large town rather than a city. Well, another problem was the book's periodisation, like when it went from and when it finished. I originally thought I'd take the story up to the 1950s, which is when Auckland began to streak ahead of the other three main cities and became you know, New Zealand's metropolis. But it soon became apparent that this was overambitious, so I cut it back to 1940, and that's the centenaries of, of Wellington and Auckland's founding. But this too created problems. Among them was the fact that Whanganui, Palmerston, Orphan, and Vicargill all became cities during the 1920s and 30s and considering them as well would generate too much more work. In the end, I settled on 1920 as the end date so I could continue focusing on the four main cities. This was arguably the end of New Zealand's colonial period, and if I ever wrote a second volume, it could begin with the emergence of these provincial cities. Now, a final issue was the content. I wanted to examine the lived experience of townspeople, that is, what people did in cities, their social relations and practices, you know, the friendships they made and so on, and the meanings they ascribed to the, these experiences, what they made of them. After hearing a 2000 talk about the project, um, fitting, fittingly actually given as a history group talk, the forerunner of this seminar series um, in 2006, Jock Phillips, um, who was um, one of my bosses, suggested I tell a larger story. He thought New Zealand history writing needed bigger stories and my project was well suited to telling one. I was a bit apprehensive about this, but came round to his view. I felt a broader story would be more successful in showing the importance of cities to New Zealand's development than a narrowly focused one. I also hoped that such an approach would better open up the field for further research. So as well as researching settler social and cultural life, I examined the founding of towns, the production of their built environments, trading relationships, Māori and city life, public health and housing, 
as well as anti-urbanism. While there are many times I regretted taking a big picture approach, I'm now really pleased I did. I'll just briefly mention the project's methodology, um, which is really quite conventional. Um, it drew on a wide range of primary sources, including diaries, letters, newspaper reports, government documents, photographs, paintings, maps, and ephemera, many of them held in this particular institution. Um, city biographies, the history of, of particular towns and cities, were the main New Zealand secondary sources, um, were relevant overseas material making up the rest. So what were the challenges and rewards? Well, the first challenge of writing a broad story in a narrowly research field was situating it in existing knowledge. While there is a reasonable New Zealand literature to draw on in some areas I was exploring, including town founding, race relations, and colonial society, there were other areas where the local literature was scant or non-existent. This included the urban built environment, street life, and anti-urbanism. In these areas, I was largely reliant on overseas literature to provide, my, provide the book with a frame. Further, because each chapter concerned a different topic, I had the task of coming up to speed with the literature in each of these areas. This was made more difficult by not having access to scholarly journals that academics can readily get. I'm, I'm a public historian. In the old days, I used to be able to creep into the Victoria University Library and photocopy um, journal articles that would um, that would suited me. But this, in these days, is no longer an option because, as you can see in this one over here, a lot of journal articles are behind paywalls and you can't access them unless you belong to that particular institution. So it seems to me that while the internet has increased knowledge for scholars based in institutions, it has correspondingly decreased it for those located outside of them. And I don't think this is good for scholarship. Um, I now know that there were some online articles that I missed that would have given parts of the book more rigour, and it's too late now. So I think it is an issue that the history profession especially needs to um, consider. Well, I was able to overcome this constraint to some degree by drawing on the experience of others. Nowhere was this more so than in the History Writers Group. Um, this is an informal collection of, um, of Wellington history writers that sort of meet every couple of months and redraft chapters and things of, of people's work. And they offered invaluable, re, um, invaluable advice in terms of some of my chapters. The collegiality of this group was, and still is, a Philip. Well, the other main challenge was funding. I received a New Zealand History Trust Award in 2006. The bit in so, I, and then, um, so I got that initial grant in 2006, and then in 2015 I got a grant from the Centre for Sustainable Cities, which is based at the University of Otago, which allowed me to finish the book. Um, the bit in between was self-funded, which is partly why the book took so long. Um, I did try to get other funding. For three years running, the project got to the second round of the Marsden Fund, um, but each time failed to jump the final hurdle. As anyone knows who's has tried for Marsden funding, it's a time-consuming and, for most, a futile process. On the other hand, the process of applying and reapplying meant that I ended up with a much stronger structure than I began with. So there was um, a silver lining. Look, I'll just me, me briefly mention um, two other challenges. The first was um, my cancer diagnosis in 2012, which was a setback in many ways. Um, I remember one of the first reactions on receiving the news was that I couldn't possibly perish yet because I hadn't finished the bloody book. <laughs> <laughs> um, fortunately, with medical treatment I've received um, over the last few years has been successful and I've been in and out of remission ever since. And here I am, I had a stint last year actually in hospital, um, and there am I sitting up in bed. 
And if you can see in the corner, there's a poster for a really good book, um, which I had um, up on my wall, which uh, was a discussion point for the nurses and doctors too, so I had lots of good conversations. Um, um, the other challenge, and this, you know, this isn't alone to me, you know, many authors get this, was um, receiving an email from Auckland University and um, Press in 2013 declining to publish a book after reading some draft chapters. Um, AUP had been supportive from the beginning and the refusal led me to have a bit of a crisis of confidence, to be honest. Um, I considered packing it in, <clears throat> but then decided to push on. I reread the chapters I'd sent them and realised they actually weren't that good. <clears throat> they were a synthesis of um, existing work rather than a fresh interpretation of the subject. At the time I was working on Tiara of the New Zealand Encyclopedia and it seems that I'd unconsciously adopted the Tiara methodology of synthesising knowledge and applied it to the book. I went back to my original structure and saw that I'd created a new one. <clears throat> I have to admit I felt a bit stupid about this, but then I'd written them while I was undergoing chemotherapy, so I blamed the mistake on chemo brain. I then spent a period of reworking the flawed chapters and writing new ones so they reflected my original intent. So, I mean, this is one of the, um, I guess, one of the, the trials or, or dangers of having such a long project is that you can go off track a bit and um, you need sometimes need shocks like that to bring it back to your original ideas. So in 2015, I sent them off to Bridget Williams Books and to my enormous joy and relief, Bridget offered me a publishing contract. Along with seeing the initial proofs, this was the most rewarding part of the project. A more recent reward is being shortlisted for the 2017 Ockham Book Awards. Um, I'm really not holding my breath about winning, but it's very gratifying to get some recognition for all the hard work. So, what are some of the main findings of the Big Smoke, and how do they increase our understanding of New Zealand's past? Well, I have to admit, in some ways, that's um, questions for others to judge rather than the author, but I was aware while I was writing the book that it was advancing knowledge in a number of areas, and I'll just consider five of them here, and maybe in question time we could have some other ones too. Right, the first one is that it provides a parallel narrative to the rural myth as an explanatory framework for colonial society. Clearly, many settlers came to New Zealand with the ambition to become farmers, but a significant majority had no intention of moving onto the land and creating a settled landscape. Instead, they remained in towns and cities and developed a vibrant urban society and culture of which this very institution is but one expression. And there it is in sunnier days, um, looking very grand. <clears throat> um, so I'm kind of hoping that perhaps in time the ubiquitous rural man alone and help meet white figure of New Zealand historiography and literature will be joined by the urban functionary and his domiciled wife. Um, and I really like this image. One of my favourite, um, uh, one of my goldmine finds was coming across the um, diary of Herbert Spackman, who was a worked in government life insurance here in Wellington in the 1890s. Um, and he was somebody that really conveyed a different idea of colonial masculinity. Um, he and his wife had a very um, intimate marriage. Um, he was very emotionally expressive and that comes through in his diary. Um, and uh, he was somebody that you, know, that, that you could really, really identify with. Um, so here they are having tea with their daughter Sylvie out in the garden of their Rintoul Street um, villa in the 1890s. 
So I, I'm, I'm trying to argue that, that not only the man alone figure, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, and, and the help meet wife, the person that, that helps, and the, the wife that helps with the farming and so on, that we can have other um, images of um, colonial um, sort of heroes, I guess, or figures um, that are urban too. Well, secondly, the book brings back the speculative element of colonisation back into play. And our previous historians have well understood that colonisation was foremost a capitalist enterprise. But this side was underplayed in the late 20th century historical narratives, which more often focused on the creation of ideal societies. We see this in accounts of Wakefield's systematic colonisation that stressed the, vertical, <coughs> the shipping of vertical slices of British society in New Zealand and the creation of bucolic societies free from modern ills. So the idea is that we're moving to a brand new land, we're going to live in, um, you know, on the land, a sort of Arcadia, um, and we're forging an ideal society, quite distinct from what was back in Britain. Well, it is true that some settlers arrived here wanting to create a better Britain. But it's also true that the lure for many others was the chance to make money. Towns were central to this ambition because urban land was more valuable than rural land. So early speculators in urban land could and did make a killing. Now the ubiquitous grid plan aided this pursuit, enabling urban space to be easily subdivided, so in two and two again. So the lack of public space in Wellington and Auckland epitomised this speculative element. With settlers deciding urban land was far too valuable to be given over to such a purpose. So um, as some of you will be familiar, in the, in the original plan for Wellington, there was ideas for grand boulevards and parks and reserves and public space and so on. Um, but the settlers decided this was too valuable to be given over to public purpose and they sold it off. And I guess it was in some ways again epitomised in debate over Te Pa, which was um, just here at the end of Taranaki Street. Um, now these red areas, this is in the plan of Wellington, these are native reserves um, and I can talk about that more um, in question time if you want to know. But at Te Aro Pa, um, this was deemed far too valuable to be left as a pa and subsequently was had to be sold off because they are going to build a wharf here. And in colonial towns, land close to a wharf was the most valuable piece. And so, as many of you know, there were disputes about um, Māori living there um, and being pushed out um, into other areas, um, so that could be taken. So that could go ahead. So, in fact, the ideal society for such settlers was one that encouraged speculation, and I think this goes a long way to explaining why New Zealand is one of the few OECD countries that still continues to resist a capital gains tax. There's few. There's actually few um, regulations that that stop that type of speculation, and it started from the very beginning of our settled, colonial settlement. Thirdly, the book erodes the notion that Māori disengaged from city life. The received wisdom is that Māori were instrumental in the founding and initially shaping of cities, but then marginalised in urban space as settlers became politically and economically ascendant. Increasingly, they were made to feel unwelcome in cities. Māori retreated to rural homelands, only returning to them after World War II with the great um, post-war urbanisation. Well, the book doesn't fundamentally disagree with this story, but shows that the retreat was only ever partial. While ever fewer Māori were actually living in cities, many hundreds continued to visit them to trade and contribute to their social and cultural life. These ranged from claiming streets as meeting places and sites of sociability, through presenting new forms of cultural production like Māori carnivals and operas. 
So historians have viewed the rapid mid-20th century urbanisation of Māori as radical and inexplicable, but as much less so when placed in the context of continual Māori engagement of urban life since 1840. Fourthly, the book offers a new explanation as to for New Zealand's rapid urbanisation. The usual account is that farming modernisation reduced labour demands, forcing agricultural workers to up sticks and head into town for work. The undercurrent in this story is that these were reluctant migrants, that if given the choice, they would have remained on the land. Yet, the evidence seems to suggest that most workers favoured urban life. A perennial problem for the New Zealand Labour Department was getting settlers to leave town. It continually noted that many working people preferred to be unemployed in the city than gainfully employed in the country, putting this down to their desire to be close to the social and cultural amenities of city life. Um, these are outlined in some detail in the book, so it includes things like theatres, clubs, societies, street life and crowds and so on. In other words, rural people were not forced to go to the cities for work because work continued to go begging in the countryside. Rather, they moved to cities because urban life is less socially isolating and more culturally diverse than rural life. The reality is that the lonely life of a shepherd, heavily romanticised in New Zealand's cultural production, held no appeal for most settlers. The book also shows how urbanisation was further encouraged by the provision of infrastructure like reticulated water and sewage networks and other material improvements. This bettered the public health of townspeople and made cities more desirable places in which to live. The malodorous odours that once enveloped cities because, you know, they're basically open sewers and so on, um, people dumped all their rubbish in the streets and so on, dissipated and it was now the countryside that stank. And to some degree that's still the case. And fifthly, the book shows how anti-urbanism became an essential New Zealand mentality. The idea that city life is inferior to country life has long shaped New Zealand society and culture. But the mentality has received little critical attention from scholars, perhaps because most have agreed with the premise. The bias against cities is evident in many areas, including anti-townspeople immigration policy, the country quota during Manda. Um, this operated from the 1870s through to 1945 and basically um, gave more representation to rural electorates, electorates and urban electorates. And the farmer backbone mantra, the idea that townspeople lived off the farmer's back, which we still hear today. Historians have explained anti-urbanism in places like America as a backlash to decline of agriculture and the growing economic dominance of cities. In New Zealand, agriculture continued to be the mainstay of the economy, but there was widespread alarm that its future prosperity was threatened by the exodus of rural workers to cities, and this fired up anti-urban sentiment. A particular dimension of New Zealand anti-urbanism was the idea that city life is emasculating. Now, it arose both from the reality that proportionally more women than men lived in cities and the belief that city women were undermining men's traditional dominance of the public sphere. This was seemingly evident in women's growing presence on streets and in city workplaces such as this one in Auckland. The company of women in such places was said to enfeeble and feminise men. The solution, argued experts, was for townsmen to leave town. Real men lived in land, on the land, went the um, discourse. Or beef up in a city gym and so as to better define one's masculinity. In other words, anti-urbanism was not just anti-city, it was also anti-woman. Fundamentally, it was anti-modern. 
The strength of anti-urbanism in New Zealand means our national heroes tend to be rural man alone figures like Jock McKenzie, Ed Hillary, Willie Apiata. Our only city hero, hero is, not surprisingly, a woman, Kate Shepherd. It'd be good to have more of, um, more of both sexes. <clears throat> so there are five findings of the book which I think advance knowledge and understanding of New Zealand's past. So in terms of future research, um, as I said before, the book, the aim of the book was to open up New Zealand urban history field. I'd like to think it would encourage other historians to examine the roles of towns and cities in shaping New Zealand. But I have to admit that I'm doubtful that such research will be forthcoming anytime soon. There are few historians interested in New Zealand's urban past, and because the subdiscipline is rarely taught at universities, the likelihood of emergent scholars developing the field appears slight. Historical research into cities still mainly is undertaken by geographers, public health and built environment scholars. This means I actually have a stronger professional relationship with social scientists than I have with historians, which um, is a bit sad, really. But I think in the long term, however, the, the, the prospects are rosier. As New Zealand and the world becomes ever more urbanised, more historians will be needed to contextualise this change. Certainly, as Auckland moves to accommodate half or more of New Zealand's total population, I think it's inevitable that the interest in the city's past will increase and generate new areas of historical inquiry. This, in turn, will stimulate new research in other towns and cities as well. There are certainly lots of topics that are ripe for the picking. This includes research on ethnic, urban ethnic minorities. Through research undertaken by Leonard Shum, who's, um, who's an employee here, we know much about the Chinese community in Wellington's Haining Street, but less about a similar community in Auckland's Grays Avenue. New research on Māori experiences of urban life would, would also be rewarding, especially the 20th century creation of pan-tribal urban space, where Tauraheri, these are urban migrants, all meant the mana whenua, those holding authority over the land. This was a significant shift in how Māori viewed territorial space and one that is worthy of more scholarly attention. Further, if we better understand New Zealand's modern transition into a multicultural society, then we also need to consider the urbanising experiences of Samoan, Tongan, Cook Islanders, Vietnamese and Koreans, among others. How have they expressed their social identities in urban space? Um, I've also identified other research areas in the book, if, if you want to, um, there's others. But I, I really do think that particularly um, late 20th century historiography, there's a real gap, particularly in terms of um, urban ethnic communities. Now finally, I pontificated in the blurb for this talk whether the book's focus on the lived experience of townspeople might see a wider return of social history. By social history, I mean the material experience of daily life, what people did during their days. I was a little surprised that I had to return to the likes of Miles Fairburn's and Jock Phillips' 1980s work to frame the social history aspects of this book. As many of you recall, Fairburn's stimulating atomization thesis, the idea that settlers were footloose and their social relations of other people were very weak, sparked a flurry of new research, mainly rebutting his argument um, in the 1990s. Um, so that includes um, particularly um, Caroline Daly's book on Taradale. But the debate petered out with the cultural turn in scholarship. 
Historians now becoming occupied with the questions of meaning, why people did things and what things meant. I think this is unfortunate because I think the debate still had some way to run, especially in regard to New Zealand cities. I used Fairburn's model in Chapter 3 to test whether townspeople's social relations were as weak as he argued. Considering the social diversity of city life, I was unsurprised to find that his atomisation thesis held true for some townspeople, but not for others. Um, I mean, one of the, some of the most poignant um, letters I read um, during the research for those people in cities that felt extremely lonely and actually dreamed about going back to, um, to the UK or dreamed of walking down um, uh, Tottenham Court Road, for example, in the crowd of that experience. Um, but obviously they couldn't. Um, so, yeah, but I, I also aware that using a hypothesis that was now 25 years old maybe recognised the need for a renewed social history research that could advance new ideas and models about the making and makeup of New Zealand society, both over time and space. There is still so much we don't know about New Zealanders' social relations and practices, especially in the 20th century. As I tried to show in the book, new social history, um, history, social history endeavours need not preclude cultural history. We need to know both what people did and why they did it. So, I trust this talk has given you a tasting of the book, how I wrote it and some of its important ideas. Of course, the next thing you should do is go out and buy it. Thanks. <laughs>